we have spoken in our creed this morning. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The creed tells us exactly what the scripture tells us because the creed is based on what the scriptures tell us. This is why we read according to the scriptures there in the Nicene Creed. So now we we get to that great yet unexplainable event. We can say what happened, but we cannot say how it happened. Do we understand it? No. Yet there is much we do not understand, and yet by faith we receive it. By grace we believe in it. Were you there consciously when you were born? How do you know your birthday? The hour you were born, the day. How do you know it? Got a birth certificate? Maybe. Where's the first place you come to know when you were born? Your mama told you. So she was a credible witness. <laughs> so you don't have to go searching for other sources of information because you have credible witnesses that tell you this is what happened. So when we come to what we're reading and seeing this morning... Luke is a credible witness. We're hearing what happened from those who saw it, who had nothing to gain by fabricating stories. Who in the world would fabricate a story that would make them poor and cause them to suffer? So we come to this Great, unexplainable event. We receive it by faith. By grace, we believe it. If, if all were explainable, it would not be a faith. And faith is not irrational. Our faith is founded upon facts. True events that took place before time and in time. Faith begins to swim where reason can only handle and get us into the wading pool. Reason can handle the shallow end of the pool But faith can go out to the deep end. 
Reason cannot begin to deal with the greatness of God. But faith embraces it. We find two places in particular where we have the ascension recorded. They are in Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 52, and also in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Both come to us by Luke. He's the one who's writing about it. Also, we could say in Mark chapter 16 and verse 19 where it is written, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Matthew ends his gospel with what we commonly refer to as the Great Commission to for his believers, his disciples, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples. That's an important distinction. But he doesn't cover the ascension. It is, as we come to Luke chapter 24, it is at the same time the ascension, but just prior to that, it's the last of his post-resurrection appearances. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was seen of upwards of 500 brethren at once. And it very well could have been pointing to this very day, the day of his ascension. Now, let us look at what happened in Luke chapter 24 and verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And he led them out as far as Bethany. There are very little of what we could say, if anything, trivial in Scripture. The location is important. This Bethany that is being spoken of It's the place where the triumphal entry into Jerusalem began. It's a place where he had gone for solitude and solitary prayer. It's a place where he made strong cries to the Father. And this would also be the place he would ascend from. It's a place where he ate the last Passover. And it's the place from which he would leave to go and suffer on the cross. So the location is very significant. The next thing, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. There's the significance of the posture that we have talked about before. He lifted up his hands. He's blessing them, but also the hands are are raised because they're receiving. And as he's receiving, he's giving. He blessed them. It was a reason that Jesus came in the first place to bless his people. He'd not come to judge or to condemn the world. When he came into the world, the angels said, I have tidings of great joy. For born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
Elizabeth would say to Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And that blessing would be spoken of by Zacharias as well, the father of John the Baptist as he spoke concerning Christ to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Jesus is is now here in the place bestowing blessings on his people. He blessed them at that moment with a a greater measure of the Holy Spirit. He blessed them at the moment with a greater measure of grace. He blessed them at the moment with a greater measure of spiritual light. He blessed them at that moment with more understanding of the word. And he blessed them at that moment with a greater peace. His last gesture then is one of great love, of even friendship. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Our great high priest, in his last moment, blesses his people. You know, there are man-made systems of praying. Man-made systems of the idea that, that you need an intermediary to get to Christ so Christ can then intercede to the Father. So pray to Mary or, or pray to certain saints. But my question is, first, you don't see it in Scripture, but then secondly, why would you need to? When was the time that anyone ever came to Jesus seriously and needfully that Jesus said, I don't have time for you? When was Jesus ever uncompassionate to his people? Who of his people did Jesus ever send away empty? He was gracious when he lived among us. He was gracious while he was on the cross. He was gracious at his resurrection. And now he is gracious at his time of ascension. Now now at the right hand of the Father, we can be sure he is gracious. How do we know that? Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Always ready to bless his people. We read earlier during the Sunday school hour, he is at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing? Sitting there looking at a, a photo album of his great moments. At the right hand of the Father, he is now engaged in ever living to make intercession for the saints. Then we read that while he blessed them, that he was parted from them, carried up into heaven. How did it happen? There's no answer that can be given to that. We just know that as if we turn to Acts chapter 1,
Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up in a cloud, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will soon come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The, The two men that spoke were two men that just 40 days ago saying, why do you seek the living amongst the dead? The same two men, the two angels. We see them in Mark 16 and verse 5. We see them in Luke 24 and verses 4 through 7. These same two who pronounced that he has risen, that he was no longer in the tomb, now pronounce... The great and blessed news. He's going to come again. He will come in the same manner as he left. The same. The same one who caused the wind to cease. Who walked on water. The one who created all things. The one who is Lord of all nature. Don't we sing that, fairest Lord Jesus, Lord of all nature? I wouldn't recommend you try it, but as Lord of nature, He could make clouds a form of transportation. And of course the cloud didn't just take him, but what what it was is as he went up, it seemed that that the cloud had received him. He went up and he was no longer visible. Without the eye and the blessing of faith, this might sound preposterous. But for the fact that so many saw it, also, as many as 500, and as he was writing this, he said, and some sleep, but some, some are alive today. Those who could refute it and say, no, it didn't happen. We're still alive if it had not happened. But they didn't refute it because they saw it. And rather than get bogged down in speculation, let us see that while we cannot answer how it happened. We're able to answer why. Why it happened. And, and why is certainly more important than the how. Which would you rather know? How he went up? And that's all we know? Or isn't it much better to know why he went up and where he went? And why he did it? And the first answer is this. You see, we, talk, we like to talk about the crucifixion. And for many people, the crucifixion stops. That's it. 
Christ atoned for our sins on the cross. At the cross, there we stay. That's the cross where we end up. Crucifixes, Christ still on the cross. But what's important? That he goes from the cross to the tomb. Okay, he is dead. He has definitely died for our sins. Well, what's next? Is that it? Is that necessary? Is that, is that enough? Is that, does that complete it for us? No. Why? Because we need the resurrection. The resurrection proves that what he did on the cross was accepted. The sacrifice has been accepted by the Father. How do we know? Because he raised him from the dead. All right. So we have the crucifixion and the resurrection. Are we there? No. We're only two-thirds of the way of what is necessary. It would be tragic that if it stopped there. But no, He must ascend. He must go to prepare a place. What Good would it be if Jesus said to them, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also if He never leaves. But as Hebrews 6 and verse 20 points out, that He must be the forerunner. He must enter the holy place. Why? So that we can follow It's a situation that we see as we were speaking of in Psalm 24 this morning. In Psalm 24, in verse 3, the question was asked, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in where? His holy place. Who may come around the throne of the Father? Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and stand in His holy place? The answer in verse 4 is not a happy one for us. It's not a happy answer for us in our own selves. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Raise your hand if you have a pure heart. Anybody? And you can't go. You can't go and be in the holy place. Why? Because you don't have what is required. And so that's a very sad answer. He who's not lifted up his soul to an idol. We've never done that. Yeah. Yeah, we have. Oh, we didn't construct one in our backyard and bow down before it, but we didn't have to do that. See, we've got this machine inside us that just constantly pumps them out for us. Our heart. He who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, to that which is false, nor sworn deceitfully, This is the one that will receive her blessing from the Lord. Have you ever pondered this? Because according to these requirements, who can ascend to the the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in the holy place? No one. No one. 
There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. From the fall of Adam and Eve, and for the rest of humanity, to the last person, no one can stand in God's holy place. That is, at least without a sacrifice, without an atonement for sin. A sacrifice of life. You see, we refer to it very often, but in Isaiah chapter 6, when he is confronted before the throne of the Lord, and he's confronted with the holiness of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm falling apart. I'm disintegrating before the holiness of God. What do we find in that passage? In verse 7, what does God do? He provides the cleansing. He provides the forgiveness. He provides the atonement for his sins. But there is someone who has clean hands. Someone who has a pure heart. Someone who can stand in God's holy place on our behalf. There is one. And we continue on in this psalm. And we read in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory will come in. As he ascends in the cloud, where's the next place? As he enters into that place of heaven, those doors that are closed to every single one of us now fly open. They're commanded to do so. And who comes in? The King of glory comes in. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the one. The immovable doors are now commanded to open. These doors that barred and blocked the entrance to the holy place must swing open and let the Lord Jesus enter. Jesus who was pierced through for our transgression. Jesus who lived a life of perfect obedience, not for his benefit, but for ours, so that his righteousness can be accounted that is imputed to us. Jesus, the one that God put forth as a propitiation for our sins. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The ascension proves then Christ has entered into the holy place for us. And because of that, salvation now comes full circle. It is now complete. This assures us that we have a place in the presence of the Father. You see, the ascension is not some trivial little add-on. Some cute little thing. You realize, don't you, that, that that great deceiver, the son of Satan, Muhammad, 
600 years after Christ said, oh yeah, he, he, I ascended too. You know, don't you, that Satan in some places is referred to as not only the deceiver, but as often sometimes referred to as the great ape. You know, I know Jane Goodall and others did fine work with monkeys and, and things like that, but you understand where, where the word ape comes from? When you ape somebody, you imitate them. That's what aping means. So when you do things in front of monkeys, a lot of times monkeys will do the same thing. You see a monkey smoking a cigarette. Why? Where did he do that? Because well, he saw a human being doing that. It's not that he saw a commercial and said, I want to be like the Marlboro Man. He saw a human doing it. And he imitates that. And Satan likes to do that sort of thing too. If I, if I can't deceive you with pulling you completely away from the truth, what I'll do is I'll imitate it. I'll, I'll come along with, you remember the beast? The beast in the book of Revelation? Seemed that he was dead and he came back to life. Same thing. Fool the people. And so what do we have? Muhammad doing the same thing. What happened to Oh, he ascended. He went on to this rock and he ascended from there. I bet he didn't. <laughs> In fact, I, I bet my soul on the fact that he did not do that. That somewhere, somewhere on the earth, maybe even down to dust at this point, there are the remains of the great deceiver's friend. But Jesus truly Ascended. Do you ever wonder, okay, if you compare the two, Mohammed ascends for what? What's the benefit? Not for you or anybody else who believes him, but Christ, he ascends not for himself, but for us. Christ has entered into the holy place. It gives us a full-blown assurance of a full and complete salvation. So why do we take special notice then of the ascension? Because this rounds out the completeness of our salvation. This shows us then that what Jesus said was completely true. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. That what was forbidden because we were sinners is now open because we're righteous in Christ. But it also, as we we're talking this morning, proves to us the full perseverance and preservation of the saints because we're not going to be left in some kind of middle ground. Salvation has its fullness and our fullness of salvation will be when we stand before the Lord in perfect righteousness, in perfect holiness, based upon what Christ has done for us, for whom, 
whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's stand together for prayer.